Today's program is sponsored by Reformation Sites, an easy-to-use website platform helping Reformed churches reach out more effectively. Listen at the end of the podcast for a special offer. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. And with the sad departure of our former co-host, Amy Bird, I'm now here only with one other co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, a congregation in the Presbyterian Church in America, based in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Todd, how are things during the COVID-19 regime and yeah. what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, well, I, I do want to reassure our audience that both Carl and I are gloriously unmasked. We're disobeying every single rule we possibly can. Ever since the World Health Organization just the other day uh, announced that that whole thing about uh, asymptomatic people probably not actually uh, being able to spread the virus. Um, uh, they did you know, walk that back. Th- 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 well, you know, I, I don't, I don't trust walk their walk back. back. I don't trust their walk back. <laughs> um, you know, they, they come out and they say, you know, the reason why we shut the world down, turns out we were wrong about that for the most part. Um, I'm, I'm walking around coughing on people. I'm hugging people. It's been great. You're getting in touch uh, with your inner Rusty Reno. I, I am. I, <laughs> I, yeah. I am. Uh, so but, we're going we're to talk about today about confirmation bias. Is that the <laughs> <laughs> We are going to, Carl and I are, are going to talk a little bit about um, uh, the, the, the current world crisis. Now, there's a lot of directions we can go in that because there's plenty of world crises uh, to keep us busy. But I do want to go in a little bit. I, this is where I want to bore in on. Uh, Carl, you wrote something for First Things uh, the other day, and, and in it, you, you address the rather strange phenomena that the protests over the death of, of George Floyd, which we, which we can agree was a horrific thing to watch. Those of you uh, that, that have watched the video, Carl's watched it, I've watched it. It's a horrific thing to watch. And, and certainly, um, outrage over that was appropriate. Um, that issue needs to be spoken into. But in this First Things piece, you kind of bore in on this strange phenomenon that the protests over the death of George Floyd have, have moved to other countries, which is a strange thing, particularly, and, and you point this out, as the protests have moved through through Great Britain, we've seen it. Uh, we've seen footage from from London. We've seen a statue of Churchill d- d- defaced uh, as, as a as a racist, for instance, and all of this going on, as you point out in your article, as as China's really been rattling its saber, continuing to to make overtures to threaten Taiwan as they are uh, bringing down their heavy boot. Uh, upon Hong Kong, you know, no surprise to anyone, I don't think, that, that, that China uh, is not really interested in, in so, sort of a two-system solution for, 
for Hong Kong. And with this going on, and, and, and the very recent relationship that Great Britain had with Hong Kong as one of its colonies was only severed uh, just a couple of decades ago. You'd think that in Great Britain, uh, concern over, over China's aggression would be kind of the, the, the thing they're talking about in the streets of Birmingham and London, etc. cetera. Uh, but, but no, we're, we're seeing protests over, over George Floyd, a, a country uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, a system that, that they're not a part of. And, uh, and so you, you, you dig into that. And so my, my purpose today is to ask you to kind of help us think through on that. We're not going to be getting uh, necessarily into issues of race. We're not going to talk about uh, police brutality per se. The last time I checked, we are all against police brutality. Um, but, but rather, what is uh, England's, what is Great Britain's big interest in the streets on this latest issue? What does that tell us about us? What does that tell us about identity politics? What does that tell us about the things that we choose to overlook and the things that we, we choose to pick up a flag for? What are you getting at in that piece? Well, China has struck me as a very interesting moral issue for quite some time now. We had a couple of years ago the example of big corporations boycotting one of the states, I think was it North Carolina, mm-hmm. relative to transgender bathroom policy at the same time as brokering lucrative deals with with mainland China, which right. has an absolutely appalling record of human rights. If if bathroom policy was the only problem in China, there wouldn't really be a problem with <laughs> right. China. Right. So China's been interesting because it's it's the poker tell at a corporate level mm. that money is driving a lot of what I would describe as corporate righteousness. Uh, big corporations, getting in touch with my sort of inner Marxist here, uh, <laughs> big corporations are very much in favor of social justice as long as it improves their bottom line. That's a very right. simple take, but I think the evidence relative to China uh, compared to other issues bears that out. Secondly, It's an interesting cultural phenomenon of which I myself was kind of subject growing up. And that is, I think British people instinctively think of themselves as very close to Americans. Right. I think to a large extent, it's a linguistic thing. We we sort of share kind of the same language. There are there are some nuances and differences. Um, we have in England far more elaborate ways of insulting people than you have over here. <laughs> direct yeah. approach and far mm-hmm. fewer words for doing it. Sure, uh, it's, it's in part a linguistic thing. It's also in part uh, a historical thing. The Second World War and America being our allies in that was, was an important part of the mm-hmm. British psyche. And I think it's a pop culture thing. A lot of the pop culture we consume in Britain is American pop culture. So there is a, a sense in which setting aside geography and setting aside colonial imperial history, the British tend to feel closer to the Americans. When you throw the internet into the mix, of course, we're, we're now able to see events around the world with an immediate immediacy to risk a tautology, an immediate right. immediacy that was unavailable to previous generations. So uh, things happening in the American political scene can seem to be much more pertinent and relevant and real to somebody in Britain than, say, mm-hmm. they would have done 20, 30 years ago. So I think all of those factors play into it. Mm -hmm. On the other side, of course, we have this long history with China. I remember in 1997 watching the 
the official handover of Hong Kong when the lease came to an end, the handover of Hong Kong to the Chinese authorities and Robin Cook, the foreign secretary, um, doing the deal. And then, you know, this small man, and I know he was a small man because I went stood next to him at Edinburgh Airport, this small man in a lounge suit getting onto a tiny motor launch and, and being ushered away. It was this rather pathetic right. end in some ways to, to Britain's connection with China. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew on that day that the arrangements, the deal for this sort of two systems where Hong Kong would continue to enjoy democracy and yet would be formally part of the People's Republic of China, everybody knew that mm-hmm. it was going to come to an end. And of course, in the last few years, we've seen an escalation under uh, President Xi of persecution of Christians. Um, religious minorities in general, but the ones we're most aware of, I think, in the United States are Christians, an increasingly totalitarian regime. And then just recently, very worrying developments on two fronts. One, the the crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong, which has been somewhat eclipsed by the COVID-19 thing, right. but the riots in Hong Kong were the big news prior to COVID. And secondly, a recent speech by the head of the Chinese military making clearly aggressive claims mm-hmm. towards Taiwan that uh, China uh, historically claims uh, as part of the People's Republic. So things in China are getting very unstable. It's fascinating to me, and one can speculate as to why. It's fascinating to me that it's, it's the George Floyd murder mm-hmm. and not the Hong Kong situation that appears to have gripped the imagination of particularly young British people and brought them out to the streets. And right. you know, there are probably, as I said, there are numerous reasons for that. But, but I, that, that, was my, that was my question, because call me yeah. cynical, Carl, call me cynical. But um, I, I have this sneaking suspicion that something other than the murder of George Floyd, something other than a, uh, a, a bad cop in Minneapolis doing a bad thing, is driving so many of these people in the streets of London and elsewhere, carrying George Floyd banners, defacing statues of Winston Churchill. I, I have a feeling that, that it's not a bad cop in Minneapolis that's yeah. really driving this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, first of all, we would acknowledge this racism in Britain. Right. So it's not as if Britain is not a racist country, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but suddenly these things, there's racism mm-hmm. in Britain. But I think you're onto something. Why this rather than Hong Kong? Mm-hmm. I think a big part of it, and this is speculation, but a big part of it comes down to belonging. Mm. You actually, in, in protesting George Floyd in London or Sydney, Australia, there's a feeling that, that one is belonging to some movement that transcends the little gatherings that one is part of. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is able to feel part of something bigger. And we live in a very disconnected age. The the normal channels of belonging, well, there's the family. Well, that's been trashed. Right. By divorce laws, et cetera, et cetera. The family is is now wrecked. Uh, Religious institutions, they're in a crisis, whether it's child abuse in the Roman Catholic Church or whatever, religious institutions are in crisis. So they don't provide a context in which we can belong anymore. The nation, well, we've had at least one, if not two generations now of teaching that everything about our nation is bad. Right. And young people now relate to their national history less in terms of appropriation and affirmation and more in terms of antithesis and and repudiation. Right. So we have a, a, a a swathe of young people out there, mass of young people out there with nowhere to belong. 
Mm-hmm. And suddenly these mass protests start in the States and one, they allow you to belong. Two, and this is one of my theories of the Reformation, at the extreme ends, they allow you to smash stuff up. Right. And one of the reasons why the Reformation is successful, I say this is one of the reasons the Reformation succeeds is it legitimizes young men going out and smashing stuff up. Right. It's an attractive right. way for young men to operate. Mm-hmm. So I think that plays, plays into it as well. Um, what did Martin Luther think about the radicals in his day that took the streets and behaved badly? Uh, he, he he was very nuanced in his rela- in his language <laughs> towards them, wasn't he? Yeah, he had a very very nuanced word for them, Schwammer, <laughs> which means <laughs> swarms. Uh, he thought of them as like a sort of plague of mm-hmm. uh, of bees. Yeah. Uh, so the iconoclastic riots of of late fifteen twenty one fifteen twenty two Luther has to actually come back from his exile in the Wartburg castle voluntary exile mm-hmm. for his own safety in order to bring safety to the the streets of Wittenberg and I yeah. think you know, one of the things when I look particularly at the riots that are going on at the moment i'm I am a big believer in the right to protest yes i don 't have any any problem in people taking to the streets to protest. That's what makes America a better place than China to right. live. Right. You can do that. Mm-hmm. But the violence, mm-hmm. I, I feel very strongly that churchmen, Christians, church leaders should unequivocally condemn violence, yes. whichever side of the coin it's, mm-hmm. it's occurring on. Violence is to be unequivocally condemned. And that mm-hmm. was certainly Luther's position in 1522. We all know Luther was inconsistent. We all know that, sure. uh, that he was to advocate violence in other situations, or violence by the state. And right. that's not part of Luther that is particularly uh, uh, helpful, I think, or mm-hmm. from which I want to learn. But the Luther of 1521, 1522, who clearly sees the danger of iconoclastic social chaos. That's, a, that's an important aspect of his life from which we can learn. Mm-hmm. And, and would you say that uh, the, the, the breakdown of the respect for institutions, broadly speaking, uh, the breakdown for honoring historic institutions has been a cause for uh, the rise in identity politics or, or vice versa, or, or is that a hard distinction to make? I, I think it's part and parcel of what's gone on. The breaking down of old hierarchies and the, the assembling of new hierarchies, go, they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the, the one requires the other, right. uh, if you like. In a related note, I am, maybe this locates me very much as a middle-class Englishman. I know the arrival of the F word as a routine way of addressing people with whom one disagrees, mm. even among politicians, Right. in public statements, strikes me as emblematic of the way that respect for other people is at an all-time low in our yeah. society. Uh, and the F word has, has long ceased in general usage to mean what it originally meant. Right, right. But it's taken on the role of being the most disrespectful way you can speak to something. You pepper your sentence with it in order to show an absolute disrespect for the person to whom you're talking. I think the arrival of the F word in public discourse is emblematic of a society where the kind of chaos that we're now witnessing, revolutionary chaos in some cases, uh, is likely to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for those who... I'm thinking uh, just on, on, on this issue of identity politics, because you raise that in your first things piece, and, and I think it's appropriate. Um, again, uh, someone who is, who is energized enough to take to the streets in London 
under a banner for a situation that happened in Minneapolis in, in the United States, but not or at least seemingly unconcerned about genuine global threats such as China's increased aggression under President Xi. That, that owes a lot to identity politics. Define identity politics if you can. Well, identity politics is, it can often be used as a pejorative, actually, but I right. think uh, if, we, if we take away its pejorative connotations, it's essentially a term used to refer to the kind of new political configurations we're seeing emerging now, which are not based around the traditional kind mm -hmm. of locations for identity, primarily the nation state. Mm -hmm or perhaps a, a linguistic identity, English speakers or French speakers. But uh, Corral typically, uh, though not exclusively, around issues of sexuality mm -hmm. and race. Those have become the two kind of key elements of modern identity politics that we tend to think of ourselves now, uh, not so much in terms of, you know, I'm English, or I'm Scottish, or I'm French, we might think of ourselves more in terms of, you know, I'm straight, I'm gay, I'm bi, I'm transgender, I'm queer, or I'm Caucasian, I'm white, I'm a Latino, I'm Hispanic, I'm black. Those kind of categories that, that really don't line up anymore with traditional structures of identity. That's what we mean by identity politics. And the, the example of Britain and the George Floyd thing is a, good, is a good example of where the issue of race and the issue of racism seems to resonate more strongly with how people think about themselves mm -hmm. than the old blocks of you know, geopolitical, national political conflicts and the human rights that were associated with mm -hmm. them. And, you know, at, at the risk of sounding glib, I'm going to say something that, you know, I, I would hope those who regularly listen to us w would expect us to say, which is that the, the Church of Jesus Christ has something to say about this in, in the gospel. I'm, I'm preparing to preach through Galatians a week and a half. I'm going to launch a series through, through Galatians. And as I've been rereading it and rereading it and, and, and pouring into to the good commentaries on it, one of the things that's remarkable about about Galatians that's been striking me, particularly in these days, is how hard that letter would have been to receive if, if you'd been among the Judaizers, how hard that would have been because among the things that Paul is doing is he's tearing at the fabric of their, of their identity. Um, uh, the, the things that they wanted to say, this is who you must be as, as a Christian, you, you must become a Jew, basically, to be a Christian. Paul begins to tear at that fabric, and that, and that must have been terribly painful uh, for those receiving that, because he's undermining some things that they saw as essential to their identity, namely uh, uh, circumcision, which for them in many ways was impossible to, to, was not just a religious marker, but it was a national marker for them. Um, an, an ethnic marker. And for Paul to undermine that piece of their identity so thoroughly had to have been extremely difficult, I would think. Um, and yet, this is, this is what the gospel does in some areas for us. It's hard. Yeah, I think you're onto a good point there, Todd. But the problem we have today, of course, is that you come up against those who've drunk deep at the well of critical theory. Right. And their answer to that will be, 
Well, yeah, you're making a, a good point there about Paul, but, but what you mean by the identity he's proposing is actually white, heterosexual, maledom <laughs> as, as normative. And I think the problem one faces then is it's impossible to, to dialogue with somebody who has that deep hermeneutic of suspicion mm. underlying the kinds of things that, uh, that you're trying to say that I think are perfectly legitimate. And just as an aside, that's why I think it's really problematic for Christians to adopt the tools of critical theory and expect anything to be left stable at the end of the day. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And again, we're, we're hearing, and necessarily so, and I'm glad, we're, we, we've been hearing a lot about critical theory in the last few years, which we're, we're glad for because, because it's encroaching uh, more and more into, uh, into Christian thinking. You know, rather famously, a year ago at the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a, a measure that came forth and was approved that critical theory could be used as a, as a very helpful uh, tool in interpreting the Bible, which, which rightly caused a, a lot of people to get a lot of heartburn over. And of course, that being brought forth by people who probably didn't understand critical theory as much as they thought they understood critical theory in terms of it being a helpful hermeneutical tool in approaching the Bible. Yeah, and I think you're right there. The things that are good about critical theory, if I could put it in those Uh terms, are things that you don't need critical theory for. (laughs) Uh, You know, the idea that that our reading of the Bible is, is skewed by place and location in time and space, by our personal experiences, Mm -hmm. by sin, Romans 1. Uh, We can actually get that from the Bible itself. Uh, The danger of critical theory, and I said this in uh, talking about queer theory at first things a few weeks ago, the end game of of queer theory really is the destabilizing of everything. It's not that you're clearing Mm. away the brush in Mm. order to rebuild. It's that you're clearing away everything. Right. And it's a permanently destabilizing thing. And, and that's why, you know, it's been interesting in, in Britain watching how the recent events have developed that yesterday, uh, the BBC removed a comedy, little Britain from the iPlayer. Well, Little Britain was the most iconoclastic, subversive, anti-establishment trashing of everything that Britain stood for comedy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, only finished uh, a few years ago. Well, now it's considered to be racist. It's uh-huh. fallen foul of the, the ever-changing goalposts of political correctness. And in some ways, it's a poster child for what critical theory does, right. and that is it destabilizes everything. So as soon as anybody gets any kind of cultural ascendancy, they're going to be torn down. Right. There is no foundation really upon which to build ascendancy, which is not exploitative of somebody. Right. That's the critical theory perspective on things. Right. And so as a result, someone who is a person of the left, i.e. J.K. Rowling, yeah. can find herself now being roundly and viciously attacked because she simply made the assertion that there are certain bodily functions, let's put it that way, that only a, a, a biological female can experience. So, so even her, her asserting uh, an undeniably biological fact has now placed her, a person of the left, uh, in the crosshairs of this. Uh, yes, yes. Fascinating. Yeah. And intersectionality is simply the, the latest iteration of this. I mean, what intersectionality does is it, in theory, makes things more complicated, 
this idea mm-hmm. that we can no longer talk about black and white, but we've got to talk about black, disabled, lesbian, for mm-hmm. example, suddenly becomes a category. In fact, what intersectionality does is it simply expands in practice. It expands the number of exploiters yeah. and makes the exploited an increasingly niche kind of category. Right. Yeah. Well, obviously, this is a discussion with lots and lots of tentacles, and it can go lots of directions. But it is a fascinating thing to see how social media, among other things, has really kind of removed uh, uh, boundaries, uh, like national boundaries that, that, that used to help control the news cycle. Now, uh, the immediacy of our, of our connections uh, allows streets to be overrun with protesters uh, in London because of you know, again, something that happened in Minneapolis. And, and there are things to be uh, concerned about this. But again, I would say, as always, uh, and hopefully not surprisingly, God's word uh, speaks to this. The gospel speaks to this. Paul, uh, the apostle, was dealing with the sorts of divisions that we're seeing even in, in our day, people clinging to certain things for their identity that the gospel challenges. And so, at the very least, within the church of Jesus Christ, um, we need to be reminded that things like um, identity politics can be uh, an affliction of both the left and the right. The, the sorts of false identity markers that we cling to, uh, well, conservatives are as, as susceptible to that as, as liberals are, and we need to watch it in our, our own hearts and to be reminded that Christ has taken down uh, the dividing wall of hostility that used to separate people, that, that even uh, godly people sometimes will want to revert back to uh, the gospel removes and, and, and obliterates. And that forces me uh, to think about my own life. It forces all of us to think about uh, things over which we divide what is necessary and what is unnecessary. And uh, so we'll provide a link on our page to, uh, to this piece, uh, hopefully from First Things, if, if we're able to do that. If not, just track them down on, on Facebook and you can find Carl's piece. It's called The Dark Cloud for Democracy. And uh, uh, it's, it's worth your time to read and to think about the times that we live in. And um, as we always try to do, to think about them biblically, to think about them uh, in terms of what Christ has done for us. Um, as always, let us pursue uh, unity in the Spirit of God. Let us pursue unity in the gospel. And let us not follow the world's lead in, uh, in pettiness and division. Well, if you get a chance, run over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, um, and you'll find there an opportunity to um, uh, enter a drawing for a wonderful little book by... Melvin Tinker called That Hideous Strength. It deals with some of the very things we've talked about today. More specifically, Tinker uh, kind of uh, leans into the challenge of critical theory and the challenge it presents not only to society, but the inroads it has made even into into the church. And I think he rightly diagnoses it and, and rightly sounds an appropriate warning for it. Uh, but you can go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, enter to win a copy of that great little book. And while you're there, if you are uh, so impressed uh, to, uh, to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, everything the Alliance does is, is donor-funded. And uh, if you want them to continue to provide good content, uh, you can make a donation to the Alliance. We're so glad you joined us, and uh, we look forward to being with you next time at the Mortification of Spin. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Now, is that coffee she brought you? So that would be the instant coffee, I, I imagine. Uh. Yeah, I only make one part of real stuff a week, and that was yesterday. So I'm trying so th- to make myself like it, but the instant, it's easier to make, and it tastes great. I, I will say this. When Karen and I were in Scotland last summer, I got great coffee, but even the coffee shops we went to didn't have like pots of brewed coffee the way they have in American coffee shops. Yeah. They, they made you an Americana, you know, an yeah. espresso shot with some hot water in it. And, and it was always really good, but, you know, nobody went to the coffee thing and uh, just yeah. each individual cup was made individually that way. But Yeah. Coffee is <clears throat> catching on in the UK now, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, we're a, we're a nation of tea drinkers. Mm-hmm. Empire, we brought all the tea back from India. So I'm a tea and Marmite man. One of my best friends growing up was from England and they would have Marmite mailed over to them and I oh, tried it. It's- oh, it's delicious. You either love it or you hate it. Um, it's uh, the it's, scrapings. It's the scrapings out of from what they make. You don't it, want to know where it comes from, but it, it tastes it, great. It's so. like this black tar stuff that they yeah. scrape out of barrels that it's, they've made oh, something delicious. else in. Yeah. I'll say two things about that. First of all, I think mortification of spin is the marmite of the podcast world. You either love it or you hate it. It's a purely visceral reaction. Secondly, I had a lecturer at Cambridge whose father had been on the Burma Death Railway. And somehow, while he was there, he'd managed to establish this food chain where he was able to get marmite (laughs) inside the camp. Priorities. And he was absolutely convinced that the nutrients in Marmite were what had kept him alive. That while his, his friends were all dying of, of malnutrition, he was thriving because he was having his Marmite. So I'm a true believer. At the end of time, it'll be me and a jar of Marmite. That'll all be that's left. Everyone oh. else will have gone. So you'd like to do more with your church's website especially in this day and age when keeping your members and visitors informed is so important. Hi, Eric here from Reformed Media. I've developed Reformation Sites as an easy-to-use website platform to help Reformed churches reach out more effectively. With many beautiful mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful services, and useful features such as Sermon Manager, online bulletins, courses, and notifications, your church's website will be ready the next time a major event happens. It also integrates with other popular services like Sermon Audio, online donations, and live streaming with pricing that fits into any church budget. To celebrate the launch of Reformation Sites, we're offering free basic setup for a limited time. The first 30 signups may also receive a free wordmark logo designed for their church. Go to ReformationSites.com to get started today. Or call me, Eric, at 561-900-6886 to explore the possibilities. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern reformation.